My wife and I like to backpack. In fact, we are working on the Pacific Crest Trail. And we're not probably the through hikers, and we probably will never take five months and do the whole thing at one time. But we have most of the state of Washington done. We have a bit of Oregon, and we actually have a small part of, relatively small part, but several hundred miles done in California. And uh, I grew up, Sierra Nevada was in my back door, and that was where our family spent every vacation. Um, we backpacked as a family from the time I was seven years old and uh, climbed. My dad and I climbed peaks and did rock climbing. And I'm, I'm not rock climbing anymore, but uh, I, uh, I just enjoy the outdoors. So, yeah, we think maybe we'll finish that, the Pacific Crest Trail, over several years. We would love to go back to Nepal. We have done the Annapurna circuit, the trail around the Annapurna in Nepal, and we found that most enjoyable. And Lord gives us good health. We say, well, when we retire, maybe we'll go back and take a little more time and do it in the other direction than what we did and do some of the side trips that we didn't do because we didn't have time. So we don't know. I, I, uh, if we never do that, you know, it won't make much difference in our lives. Uh, actually, what we'd like to do is take the grandchildren with us. And uh, we are taking each of our grandchildren someplace in the world when they graduate from eighth grade. And our eldest grandchild, Last year, we took to Africa, and uh, he went for three and a half weeks. Um, got a little bored when Grandpa was speaking, but um, in the process of that, and my wife came with me, and or actually, she brought him out uh, after. I spoke longer, but then she came with the grandson and joined me, and then we took him on a 10-day trip to mission hospitals and orphanages and missions. And I did some speaking there in some of those places. But uh, it was really good for him to see that. And then we took him for four days to Big Game Park. And uh, that was the thrill of his life. He, but when you, when you ask him what he enjoyed most, he enjoyed the orphanages and the and the mission hospitals, it opened his eyes. So we're grateful for that. And his sister is next in line, and that will probably come early next year. And uh, she wants to, she's very definitive on where she wants to go. He said, wherever you want to take me is fine. But that granddaughter said, I want to go to Thailand. Well, I told her it all depends on where I get invited. <laughs> So we ultimately are the ones. And if she doesn't want to go, that's okay. We took our young grandchildren, the younger ones, uh, to Switzerland last year. Um, my son and I both had to be at a convention in Geneva. And we spent a week afterwards in the Alps, hiked every day, had a wonderful time. Really surprised at 
how tough those little young ones were in terms of their hiking, but they had a, they complained. Why can't we go back? But at the end of the day, they want they their favorite hikes were the long ones. So we had a good time. You know, the National Air, Aeronautics and Space Administration invested close to a million dollars in an obscure Russian scientist's anti-gravity machine. Although it had failed every test and it would violate most of the fundamental laws of nature. Yep, US government spent a whole bunch of bucks on it. The Patent and, and Trademark Office issued patent number 6,372,718 for a physically impossible motionless electromagnetic generator, which was supposed to snatch free energy from a vacuum but it doesn't even work according to principles of physics. The world is filled with examples like that. We spend, and, and health is no, is, is no uh, exception to that. Uh, in the area of health, we have all kinds of extremes. And I'm very concerned as I travel the world and as I interface with church administrators, president, union division presidents and others who say to me, we don't want anything to do with health. And I say, why? And they say, because everywhere health is taught, it brings church fights and disunion. And we don't know how to deal with it. We need to be balanced in our approach to health in a very, very unbalanced world. As we begin this discussion, and this is a real case, Robert has cancer of the colon. The doctor told him that it is probably small and that surgery would be the best possible treatment and would have the best possible outcome. But Robert's a little scared of surgery. And Robert has many friends who have now come out of the closet and are recommending this, that, and the other thing. And of course, he went on the internet and he learned that there was a clinic that treated cancer with magnets and enemas and special diets and they promised complete cure and there would be no need for surgery whatsoever. And so he's at a crossroads. He doesn't really know what to do. Um, should he have surgery? or the treatment with magnets and enemas and diet. He's confused, like many people are confused. So he investigated further and he found testimonies of many, many people who had seemingly had a cure from seemingly similar cancer uh, who had tried the enemas, the magnets, the special diets, and they didn't have surgery and now they're cured. He found that all on the internet. His friends and family advised him on what they thought he should do, and every one of them had a different opinion. Confusion grew. Should he have surgery, or should he go with the alternative, more natural treatments? And finally, he decided to get a second medical opinion. So he went to another doctor, unconnected with the other one, 
And he was told that he really, because it was very small, very early in its detection, should have surgery. And he would probably have no more problem for the rest of his life. There was fear and uncertainty. But he did choose surgery. And the good news is that the cancer was small. There was no sign of spread. The margins were completely clear. The doctors would keep a close watch, but that no further treatment was necessary. He was grateful. How do we relate to all of that? There's a voice <laughs> crying out for everything in this world today. And it's very confusing to people. You know, I've thought a lot about this business of balance. Who is balanced in this world? Think about it. Who is balanced? I've come to the conclusion that the only balanced person is me. Everyone else is unbalanced. There are those who are ahead of me, and they're on the bleeding edge of conservatism. And there are those behind me who are the bleeding heart liberals. Think about it. Isn't that the way we think about it? And wherever we are on the spectrum is where everybody else should be. But is that true? You know, there are three pillars for evaluating content. Three pillars in Adventism. This is, and we find this in the church manual. But is it consistent with the Bible? And we talked about the message of moderate alcohol a few minutes ago. We have a strong message in terms of caffeine. Don't touch it. Don't use it. We have a... We, it's supported. Is it supported by the spirit of prophecy? These are the three filters that I use. And then lastly, is it evidence-based information? Is it based on good scientific evidence? Why are these things important? Now, I don't know you folks very well. I've seen you for the last few minutes, a couple of hours or an hour and a half. I just was handed, just the day I left, or the day before I left to come here, we just got it in the mail, actually. My secretary handed it to me. Two little booklets on natural remedies. Beautifully done. Beautiful pictures. I opened it up, and I was just thumbing through it. And the first page I looked at said, natural vaccine. And I thought, wow, really? take a mixture of lemon juice which was claimed to be the magic pill along with garlic and a bunch of other things mix it all together in certain proportions and I don't remember what that all what those proportions were 
And if you drank that every morning within 30 minutes of awakening, you would never need to have any vaccines for any disease, be it polio. I mean, they listed all kinds of things. It wasn't just the flu vaccine. How do we evaluate that kind of thing? You know, I need to, I didn't even put it in my book, I, I mean in my bag, I, I'm going to look at it after I get home. Because um, they've asked me to evaluate it. I get, I get those kinds of things several times a week. Um, not always on those topics, but this had a lot of nutrition stuff in it too. How do we evaluate those things? I think we need to be very clear. We need to say, is it consistent with the Bible? Is it supported by the spirit of prophecy? And is it supported by evidence-based science? Ellen White supported science. She said God was the author of true science. She recommended that we start a medical school. And when she, when we were, when we, when she was asked after purchasing the property at Loma Linda, she was asked by the brethren which type of medicine should be taught at this new hospital school. She said it should be allopathic because it is more closely aligned with science. Naturopathic, homeopathic, chiropractic, they were all in, they were all known then. They were all disciplines for which there were schools and training programs. And she said, we want the one that is most consistent with science. She herself was a pioneer. She chided one of our missionaries who lost a child in China because they refused to give the smallpox vaccine. And she said, you brought the problem upon yourself. She herself recommended quinine for malaria. Um, we have many evidences that when science and the evidence was there, she recommended it. We need to understand those things. And there's all kinds of strange voices out there today. But we need to be careful. But why is it that we want to be careful? You know, there are things you and I each do that we have chosen to do. But we may not, and, and maybe we do that whether they're right or wrong. I'm not here to say. But what do we teach in the public? That's what we need to be most careful about. In Councils on Health, she said, if they see that we are intelligent with regard to health, they will be more ready to believe that we are sound in Bible doctrine. Our understanding and interpretation of scripture is on the line when we teach health principles in the community. And we want those principles to be correct and evidence-based. And if not, we should not be surprised if people are not willing to listen to us 
about the Bible. I was given some very, very wise advice many years ago, and it was this. Remember, in every audience, the chances are high that there will be somebody in that audience that knows more about a small area of knowledge than you do. So be very careful. And always leave yourself a little door to get back out. Was very, very wise advice. Many years ago, and I, I, the Lord gave me an, has given me a number of illustrations, but I'll just share one. I was doing a weight control class, and there were about 45 people in the class. They were sitting in a semicircle, several semicircles. And as was my habit, I always asked people to, kind of an icebreaker, just getting acquainted, you know, what's your name, why did you come, kind of thing. And there was a man sitting right where you're sitting here, brother. And he was destined to be the last person because I started at the back. And the closer it became his turn, the lower he sat in his chair. And he, you could visibly see him get lower and lower and lower. His wife was sitting right next to him. And she said, I, my name is Vesta. And I this introduced herself and I need to lose weight. She was very cheerful. And then it was his turn. And he, he didn't even look up. And he mumbled, my name is Joe, and I'm here because she made me. That was it. So now I had all their first names. We had a good class. I said to myself, I'll never see him again. Next week he was back. Next week he was back. Next week he was back. I was shocked. He sat a little higher each week. Listened a little more, seemingly. About eight weeks into the program, he said to me one evening, I want to talk to you. Can I talk to you afterwards? I said, sure. So we met afterwards and sat down. He said, you don't know who I am. I said, no, I don't. Except that you're Joe. And you've lost a little bit of weight, and that's good. But I don't know anything more about you. Well, he said, I'm a psychiatrist. And he said, my specialty is bariatric medicine, which is the treatment of obese people. And he said, I just want you to know that this has been the best class that I've ever attended. He said, what you've shared is accurate. And he said, it works. In fact, he said, it works better than what I do in my practice often. He said, my wife and I are going to continue to come. But he said, I want to know if I could refer my patients to your class. For the next five years, more than half of the people who came to our weight control programs were referred from his patients. He was the most well-known bariatric physician in that metro, large metropolitan area. And he sent his patients to our class. I began, I embraced, I mean, I, I, of course, told him that was fine, would be happy to take them. And I began inviting him to come and give 
specific presentations. We became good friends. Both he and his wife have passed away now, but uh, that was many years ago. If I had talked nonsense, not only he wouldn't have come back, but he had never referred anybody to the class. And we were very blessed, God blessed, because we were able to, I, I can't remember now the numbers, but I think that there were more than 20 people that he recommended to come to the class that were baptized at Seventh-day Adventists over time. Um, as a result of coming and being introduced to Jesus as the agent of change in their lives. They were ready. Not everybody was ready, but uh, they, were, they were more willing to listen to Bible doctrine. And my wife and I had the privilege of studying the Bible with, with Joe and Vesta. They asked us about it. We thought at one point that we were going to see them baptized. But there were some things that just stopped them in their own lives they needed to deal with, and it just never happened. The Lord knows. The Lord knows their hearts. It was one of, our one of my disappointments. When we are unbalanced, the door is also closed in great measure so that unbelievers cannot be reached by the present truth upon the Sabbath and the soon coming of the Savior. The most precious truths are cast aside by the people as unworthy of a hearing. These men are referred to as representatives of health reformers and Sabbath keepers in general. A great responsibility rests upon those who have thus provided a stumbling block to unbelievers. Extremism and fadism is the work of the devil. It discourages people from embracing the health message. These men are doing a work which Satan loves to see go on. We need to be balanced. And we need to have a little understanding of science. See, science is a systematic attempt to reduce bias. See, I said, you know, we can, we can observe in studies, and, and it's been done. That uh, more women wear that women who wear hose are more likely to have breast cancer. But the biases have not been removed from that research. And science is simply an attempt to do that. And people say to me, "But it takes so long. Look at what's happened with alcohol. It's it's thirty years of looking at that data." When the, from the time the paradox was, rec was recognized until we now have a very clear picture from an evidence-based scientific perspective of what's going on. Science doesn't happen fast or rapidly, and it's a good thing it doesn't, because we have much more firm and clear recognitions and facts. But a lot of people are very, the layperson is very frustrated. See, science tries to remove the element of unsystematic personal experience from the scientific process. It attempts to use objective measurements, not subjective judgments, whenever possible. 
It insists on the corroboration of findings by other scientists. It demands public evidence open to public scrutiny, not private data subject to personal confirmation. Its facts must not rest on the say-so of some authority, but on the objective evidence. The scientific method is not always easy for the layperson to understand. Let's take, for instance, an observation that exercise lowers the risk of colon cancer. That's an observation. It then needs to be formulated into a hypothesis. And we have to predict what the outcome of that hypothesis will be. Then we design tests in order to establish whether the prediction is true or not. And that prediction is based upon the hypothesis, which is based on the observation. And we often need to go through that cycle several times because we may need to modify if we don't get consistent results. And when we see consistency, we then say we have a theory. Scientific theories are always subject to change. And that's why some of the greatest minds today in the area of moderate alcohol are changing. Because they're saying, yes, we had a theory. It was based on the evidence that we had, but now we have more evidence. We need to modify that theory. You see, observations trump everything. Scientific knowledge is a body of statements of varying degrees of certainty. Some most unsure, some nearly sure, but none of them are absolutely certain. Now, we're in a little different category. And so when we put scientific observation and evidence together with divine counsel, we can have a higher degree of surety. So we have hypothesis, then we say science says, then we have a scientific theory, but we never have absolute fact in science. I want to share with you something that was published a few years ago, but it still stands very true. It's called, a, and, and it's called The Seven Warning Signs of Bogus Science. And it was published in the, in the Chronicle Review uh, in 2003. But I want to go through those seven steps, or those seven uh, warning signs, because I think they're very helpful and very educational. Number one, the discoverer goes directly to the media. <coughs> so you've discovered something that you believe is true, and rather than take it to the scientific, through the scientific process, you take that theory or hypothesis, if you will, straight to the media. You see, the integrity of science rests on the willingness of scientists to expose new ideas and findings to the scrutiny of other scientists. And oftentimes people say to me, why does it need to appear in a peer-reviewed journal? Well, the reason is very clear. 
In the peer-reviewed journal, the very name suggests that people who are experts in that area review the evidence that you've submitted before it even gets published. And when it gets published, other peers around the world, when they read it, can say, oh, I don't believe that that's correct. Let me prove it wrong. Or I think they made a mistake when they read the methodology. So everything gets published, how they did it, what their findings were, how they did the analysis, on what basis the statistics were done, etc. That all becomes public knowledge. And as a scientist somewhere else, you can go to your laboratory and say, you know, I think there was a problem in this area of the methodology. So I'm going to do it, but I'm going to change that method. And if you come up with the same results, then you go, hmm, maybe there's something to it. But maybe you come up with different results. And then you publish it, and you communicate with the original researchers, and there's a give and take back and forth. Sometimes they can get pretty heated in terms of their arguments and their discussions. But it's done openly, and it's not directly to the media. Bypassing peer review suggests that the work is unlikely to stand up to close examination by other scientists. So when somebody says to me, oh, I didn't go through peer review, that just takes too long, and there are too many lives to be saved, I go, that's a big red flag. And so many product, makers of many products go directly to paid advertisements or infomercials or presentations to the public. And the world is filled with that. Internet, TV, you name it. We need to be careful. That the, if the discoverer goes directly to the media, we need to be suspect from the beginning. Number two, the discoverer claims suppression by a powerful establishment. And we hear this all the time that uh, their discovery has been suppressed by a powerful establishment, whether it's, you know, I can remember when I, was, <laughs> when I was a kid, Popular Mechanics published a number of articles saying that very soon we're going to have cars that ran on water. Cars that ran, the carburetors, all you had to do was just fill up the tank with water. Gas wasn't needed. And the reason that it was going to be delayed was because of the petroleum industry and because of Detroit. They didn't want that, and it went on and on and on. See, they raised straw men, and then they knocked them down. They uh, blamed some powerful establishment. Today, there's still no car that runs on water. I'd love to have one if it did. Um, they accuse mainstream science of being part of a larger conspiracy that includes industry and government that doesn't want to upset the status quo. I read it all the time, you know, this cancer cure works. But the doctors don't want you to use it because they would lose money. And the pharmaceutical industry, they're making money with all of theirs, all of their treatments, and they don't want this because they would lose money. It hasn't been proven. The discoverer has has not taken it to peer review process and is simply blaming a powerful part of the establishment. That's a huge red flag. Number three, the scientific effect is at the very limits of man's detection. 
I, you know, we see it in a number of areas. You know, the Loch Ness Monster in Scotland. Never yet been seen. You know, there have been some blurry cam pictures, but that's the best. Um, I can remember seeing these blurry pictures of flying saucers that landed out there in the desert of California. Um, when I was a kid, they would get published in the newspaper. All scientific measurements must contend with some level of background noise or statistical fluctuation. And if the signal-to-noise ratio can't be improved, the effect is probably not real, and the work is not science. That's a big red flag. Today, we have incredible capacity to measure. Today, there's a whole field of health that says there are immeasurable currents and that get blocked and get, uh, uh, you know, have to be unblocked with all kinds of strange and wonderful mechanisms. We'll come back, to, we'll come to that this afternoon. Evidence is antidotal. You see, antidotes, stories, have a strong emotional appeal to people. They keep superstitious beliefs alive in an age of science. And we need to remember that data is not the plural of science or of antidote. You can have all the antidotes in the world and it does not amount to data. The most important discovery of modern science is not vaccines or antibiotics, but the randomized double-blind trial. We know what works and we know what doesn't work. And if the individuals who are being tested don't know which group they're in and the evaluators don't know which group they're in, we have the most likely chance. That's why double-blind, the term double-blind, we have the greatest likelihood of finding out what the truth is about something. You know, it's interesting. The NIH-sponsored National Institutes of Health, we've, we've all heard of, you know, vitamin C, huge megadoses of vitamin C can uh, shorten the, the course of the common cold. And uh, many people still believe that. Drink lots of orange juice, take lots of vitamin C, whatever. But in the studies that have been done, they found, in, in one of the largest studies that was ever done, they found that there was a difference in result between those who believed they were getting the vitamin C and those who believed they were not getting the vitamin C. And what they had discovered was that their placebo was an inert substance like starch that was put in a capsule, and these subjects were taking them apart and tasting them. Well, ascorbic acid has a very acid taste to it, but starch does not. When they believed they were getting ascorbic acid, they had shorter symptoms than if they did not believe they were getting it. When they knew, it also made a difference. So then they came up with, a, with another placebo, did the study again, and this time they found out that if people believed it, whether they were or not, they seemed to get better. Very complex stuff. And many benefits that we ascribe to things that people do are really placebo and not associated with the particular therapy or modality that is being used. We need to understand the power of the mind. Number five, 
It's credible as it endured for centuries. And you've all heard that. Many things have been appealed to, are being appealed to today. There's a myth that hundreds or thousands of years ago, our ancestors had miraculous remedies that modern science can't understand. One of the classic examples of that today is traditional Chinese medicine. Traditional Chinese medicine in our part of the world is considered by many to be wonderful. However, we need to realize that just 30 years ago in China, the average lifespan of a male was 35 years old. Traditional Chinese medicine did not extend life in China. Today, the average lifespan is almost just over 60 years now. Why? Because of rational scientific medicine and changes in lifestyle and other habits is based on scientific evidence. In March, I was in China, in a large multi-million population city. They took us to one of the most revered traditional Chinese medicine hospitals. It was very interesting. Because as we went, now they, you know, they had all the herbal treatments and all of the traditional treatments that they offered there. But they also had the most sophisticated CT lab I've seen. It was, it was state of the art with Western equipment. It had PET scanners, had x-ray, it had laboratory. They showed us the, the pharmacy and they had a, a, I mean, we didn't go into the back rooms, but they said, this is the pharmacy, and they had one, two, three, four, five windows, and they said, those are all Western medicines, and then they had two windows, and those are traditional Chinese medicines. And I said, who gets the Chinese? Oh, only the poor, when they can't afford it. Everybody wants Western medicine. I said, why do you have CT scanners and so forth? Oh, if they can afford it, that's what they want. Only the poor get the traditional. I, just because it endured for centuries does not mean that it has current value. Ancient folk wisdom rediscovered or repackaged is unlikely to match the output of modern scientific laboratories. The discoverer has worked in isolation. And we've all heard these stories and they're very familiar the image of a lone genius who struggles in secrecy in an attic laboratory and ends up making a revolutionary breakthrough has to do more with Hollywood movies, fiction films, than with reality. Scientific breakthroughs today are always the synthesis of the work of many, many, many people and laboratories. And then the last is that the discoverer must propose new laws of nature to explain an observation. And we see this too often. A new law of nature invoked to explain some extraordinary result must not conflict what, with what we already know. If we must change existing laws or nature or propose new laws to account for an observation, it's almost certainly wrong. It's another big red flag. People are quick to espouse all kinds of health claims. And you know, we've gone through many, many of them in area of diet in the last 35 years. We're seeing a revival of raw versus cooked food. The zone diet is dead today, but it was really hot a few years ago. Um, 
wheat belly and, and grain brain, and it just goes on and on and on. The vegan is, diet is the gold standard, and everything else is, is uh, inferior to that. Um, a plant-based diet, and we'll talk more about some of these things, uh, some of these philosophies this afternoon. But, you know, there are many spiritualistic beliefs that are mixed in with the vegan diet in people's minds. And we need to be aware of these things. And, um, you know, there's a dose-response relationship in everything. I can give you a small enough concentration of the most potent poison in the world, and you will not die if it's a small enough concentration. We see that dose-response relationship in biology always. Um, just, just very quickly, and I know it's time to close, and we'll do that. Ellen White says, rightly understood science and the written word agree, and each sheds light on the other. Together they lead us to God by teaching us something of the wise and beneficent laws through which he works. Rightly understood, they are in perfect harmony. All truth, whether in nature or in revelation, is consistent with itself in all of its manifestations. We just need to rightly understand it. So we don't have to choose between the Bible and science. That's a false dichotomy that many people create. God is the greatest scientist of all time, and each sheds light on the other. And rightly understood, they both lead us to God. God's word is primary, and it takes precedent. I want to just share, I've never shared this before with, a, with an audience. It's something I've been working on for a long time. Um, and I, I, it may have some flaws, and, and I would be the, certainly the first to admit that it does. But if Ellen White, you know, we, we say to ourselves, what can we accept? If Ellen White is the only source, it's probably reliable and good information. So if she's the only one that says, don't touch, don't use, caffeine and caffeinated beverages, I have a choice to make. And I can accept it on faith as being the best. There were those a hundred years ago who became vegetarians who accepted that on faith. Today, we have a lot more evidence. But what if Ellen White says something and it's confirmed by science? Well, it's just the same. I think it's reliable information and we can follow it for good health and good outcome. But what about popular health advice with no Ellen White and no scientific evidence? Well, we probably ought to leave it alone. And I think alcohol was one of those. Um, I, I mean, she said no uh, about alcohol. And the world of science said, there's a lot of evidence that you need to have it moderately. And I think that falls in that category. And yet I think the advice of leaving it alone was very valid. But what about popular health advice with no Ellen White mentioned, but strong scientific support? Well, we need to evaluate it and see if it's consistent with the, with the whole health message as we understand it. Maybe okay, but it needs to be based on good science. And then lastly, there are many things that are popular in the health world, popular in the world in regard to health with strong scientific support, but condemnation from Ellen White. 
we need to recognize that scientific thinking can be wrong. But in time, I believe that the Lord will prove if time lasts long enough. However, I don't think time is going to last so that every last question is put to bed. I believe that there will be always the need to accept on faith. And so when I think about, um, you know, caffeine is a good example of that today. There is some strong scientific support for the use of caffeine in the literature. Now, is it misguided? Maybe. But it is based on good principles and good research, but its conclusions may prove to be wrong in time. But Ellen White said something entirely different. And if time lasts, I believe that science will see their error, as we have seen in the area of alcohol. We've seen it in dietary areas also. Now, as we close, I just want to share with you a concept that I think is very important to understand, and that is we live in a world in which today, and I meet people all the time on airplanes, and they, you know, they, I ask them what they do, and they tell me about how successful they are in their business, and then finally they usually get around to asking me what I do, and I tell them I'm a health educator, and they ask me where I work, and I say, well, I work for my church, and they're absolutely shocked that any church would have anything to do with health, and it opens some very interesting conversations, and then the meal comes, and, and the drinks, and, you know, after three or four drinks, they know I'm a health educator, and they go, oh, maybe I shouldn't be drinking so much, and, you know, they feel a little bit guilty, and then the meal comes, and I get my meal, which is a vegetarian meal, which is usually better than theirs, um, certainly nutritionally better. Uh, not always the greatest meal, but uh, you understand. And, and it, it provides conversation, you know, and I, they express guilt. And sometimes they express it this way. Oh, well, you know, I really exercise a lot so that I can drink and I can eat the food I like. Is that way we get balance in life? I would like to propose to you it is not. There's this concept in the world today that you can take a high-stress uh, lifestyle and a poor diet and coffee and you could add alcohol, many other things, but if you would balance it with no alcohol and with prayer and physical activity, you'll have health. But that is not the Bible's definition of health. We cannot balance, in fact, we can't put enough good things on the side of good in order to balance out the bad. That's a worldly concept. The only way that we can have balance is in looking to Jesus by studying his life and character, by earnestly desiring to be like him, our minds will be balanced in the right direction that we may overcome selfishness and choose a course of righteousness. The biblical concept of balance is that by God's grace we focus on the good and we remove all of the harmful from our lives. Traditional Chinese medicine and its concept of the yin and the yang says that in order to have health, success, or whatever area you're looking in, you have to balance the good with the bad. 
but that's not a biblical concept. It is only through Jesus Christ that he gives us the strength to remove the bad things from our lives and to focus on the wholesome and the good things. Satan will so shape circumstances that unless we are kept by divine power, they will almost imperceptibly weaken the fortifications of the soul. We need to inquire at every step, is this the way of the Lord? So long as life shall last, there will be need of guarding the affections and passions with a firm purpose. Not one moment can we secure can we be secure except as we rely upon God, the life hidden with Christ? Watchfulness and prayer are the safeguards of purity. We can live balanced lives, but only as they are centered in Jesus Christ and His grace. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.